Welcome to the Key and Mang audio experience where you're here from two up-and-coming therapists looking to enhance the lives of listeners by addressing health, wealth, lifestyle, and overall growth. Tune in to hear the latest lessons learned on the Key and Mang audio experience. Welcome back to the latest episode of the Key and Mang audio experience. I'm your host, Mang. As always, I'm my fellow co-host, Key. Key, what's good? What's up, Mang? How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Can't complain. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right, today on today's episode, our guest is the CEO of Macongo Capital, CEO of Macongo Inc., and author of the NFT Breakdown, Karel Macongo. Karel, what's good? What's going on, yo? What's going on? Thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. So we're just going to open it up with, can you kind of tell us a little bit of your backstory and how you got to the point where you're at right now? Yeah, so my backstory would really start, believe it or not, around college. First got to um, Bridgeport my freshman year. I wasn't into finance or business or anything like that. I was actually on the path to becoming a lawyer. So I was taking a lot of political science classes. But during that time frame, what happened um, that got me into finance, in high school, we had like a, a mock stock class with like fake stocks and you would, it would be rankings at the end of every week. And believe it or not, I came last every single week throughout high school when I took that class. So that got me very irritated. So the next year, once I got to college for my birthday, my dad gave me $300. And usually I'd just spend that money on Jordan. I'm like, now nah, I'm put this in the stock market and figure this out. It took a long time, but eventually went from $300 to over six figures in the stock market from high school until now. So that's what got me into finance. Um, and as far as business, different business and just the entrepreneur mindset, um, in college, what I used to do was... Um, like before there was a party, people would drop off their sneakers at my dorm room and I would clean it. I had like a sneaker cleaning kit. So I just charged people like seven to ten dollars. And that's what got me into like creating businesses and learning that you can actually find ways to make yourself of value. So that's like the background behind that that um gateweighted everything into finance and business aspects with me. Can you talk about uh, deviating from the law school track to entrepreneurship and why you did oh, that? Yeah. So, yeah so basically I was dead set on that um my dad has a big background in um um being a lawyer law international relations and things of that nature so I was always around that and seeing it and that was something I was just naturally interested in but the, what happened was after I graduated from UB I graduated like a year early so I took the time to have an internship at a law firm in Geneva, Switzerland, at an international law firm. And the experience was great because I was dealing with, like, high-level clients and um, and actually defending, like, international criminals. I can't talk about who we were defending because I signed a non-disclosure. But what I learned from that experience was I would be a great lawyer. I'd definitely make a lot of money, but I definitely would not be happy. So that was the biggest thing for me. I know a lot of people are willing to put money over the happiness or money over their sense of peace. I'm really not that type of person, though. So I discussed it with my parents. I'm like, we, I did the law internship, and I, I could be a lawyer. Don't get me wrong. I could be a successful one, but I know I would not be happy. Because when you're doing something like law or medicine or engineering, you don't play by your own rules. You have to play by the rules that are set for you and find a way to maneuver around that. Now, of course... It might work out for some people. Everybody has their preferences. But me, I'm a little bit hard-headed. I have authority problems, and I like being a creator and letting my creative juices flowing in the aspect of business and finance. And I talked to that with my parents, and once again, I'm Congolese, so African parents, you know there's only like four options. Lawyer, 
doctor, engineer, or disgrace. So I was really worried when I was talking to them about it. But believe it or not, they actually supported it a lot. And they're, yeah, we see you shifting. The, and I really appreciate my parents for that because most African parents, they try to like, like steer you in the direction that they want for you instead of letting you explore. So they let me explore. And um, it was the best choice, to be honest, because it gave me more time to focus on myself and just master my crafts in finance and in business. Can you tell us about a little bit about how the cups got started and how you started making some bread while in college and then the transition from when you left college and how you got creative with um, making sales with the cups? Yeah, so the cups definitely started in college, I think my sophomore year, if I recall. So basically, I was still cleaning snakes and stuff like that. But I'm like, I need to create something else that like people are going to need all the time. I was thinking really hard, and I don't know how. I, you know what it was? I think around the time was when Meagles was like really popping as a as a musical group, and they would always have these styrofoam cups. And I'm like, wait a second, I might be onto something here. So I tried it out, styrofoam cups, and was selling it for like four dollars. And when I first started off, everybody was like, because I was asking people's opinions on it, they're like, no, nah, that's stupid. No one's gonna spend four dollars on styrofoam cups. But you know how life is; everything's stupid until it works. So I tried it out. At first, it was just my friends supporting me just because they're your friends, you know what I'm saying? But I remember the, the following semester, I guess people kept seeing the cups and kept seeing the logo. And then people kept requesting it. Every time there was a party, people were stopping by my door, buying cups, buying cups. So now I'm like, okay, I can make it into a real business. Let me upscale it and let me actually get um, better materials. So I went from styrofoam cups, which are bad for the environment, to um, BPA reusable plastic cups. And I just kept um, upscaling, upscaling, upscaling. It got to the point where I was selling them out the trunk of my car and security would always pull me over and think I was selling drugs out the trunk. And I'm like, nah, these are cups. <laughs> and they'd always be surprised and didn't understand why people keep stopping by my car all the time. So I'd literally go around campus whenever there's a party, just drop enough cups for people that purchased it through cash app or whatever the case may be. Now, once I graduated from college, I was outside of the market for people that want cups, for party cups. Now I had to rethink, like, damn, I'm back in New York City. I've been away from New York because I, I went to school away in Connecticut. How do I get back on the scene? How do I get back a new kid that I'm going to have to cater to with people that I, I don't know um, on a larger scale? So believe it or not, I'm actually an introvert. But now I, like, um, I worked on it these past few years, ever since leaving college, and became more, like, enthusiastic, charismatic, and that's very important when you're running a brand. So I started going out to parties. I was never even really a party person. I started going out to parties and the whole outside fiasco. So that also drew to my brand too, because since they're party cups, the person that owns the cups should be an outgoing person too. So every party I went to, I'd bring some cups and it became more and more popular. The following summer after that, when I first came back to the city, the cups went crazy. Like they were in every um, borough in New York. They were out in New Jersey, Connecticut, and it got to the point where I was now shipping them from home. So I have a label printer, um, put my business on Shopify, and it, it would just um, print out the label, and I just shipped them out. And I knew the cups were going crazy because there's this um, event in Canada in Toronto called, I think, Caravana. It's a big festival. So I wanted to go to the festival, but I was just busy at the time, so I didn't get to. But somebody sent me a, a, a Snapchat of somebody at Caravana with my cups. I'm like, damn, I'm not even over there with my cups over there. So I think that's when I knew, like, all right, this is actually successful because it's over state lines. It's, it's on the West Coast. It's in L.A. 
It's in um, Toronto. It's all over. So that's when I knew, like, okay, I got to continue to keep my foot on the gas with this business. And that's over, uh, like, a four, let, let's say that's over a four-year period from, like, when you first started to when you first, when you started in Canada? Yeah, exactly. Definitely a four-year period. Okay. And then how did you, like, I imagine it kind of started slow, like building, building your business and building, getting the name out there. And then all of a sudden it starts to pop off. Like how, what were some of the habits that you needed to have in place to make sure that it continued to trend upwards? Believe it or not, I didn't have no game plan with the, the beverage ribbons. With the cups, I had no game plan. I freestyled that so crazy. I think I had the logo before I even had what I wanted to do with the logo. Like it was just very unorganized. And I do have an unorthodox way of doing things, even though you're supposed to want to, and it's crazy because it sounds hypocritical, but I always recommend people writing out their business plan, structuring it, having writing down what are the expenses potentially going to be. But me with the cups, I'm not going to lie. I just freestyled at the beginning. And then once I seen that people are taking the brand seriously, I'm like, I, I have to now step it up. And like towards the end, I started like restructuring it, improving it, caring about the material, making sure it's not harmful to the environment, making sure the plastic is reusable, making sure they're dishwasher friendly and things of that nature. As far as the habits that I had to create, um, the, the biggest thing for me was treating my business as a business and not a hustle. Because with a hustle, your, your end game is just whatever flipping, just getting money. As a business, you want to make sure you leave a lasting impression. That can be something as simple as a good marketing, um, how you package your business, how you interact with customers, because those are lasting impressions. And believe it or not, word of mouth is the best marketing strategy. So if you give someone a phenomenal business experience and you yourself are a good character, nine times out of 10, they're going to recommend your business to someone else. So I think that was the most important habit that I I, um, mastered during that process. What other things do you have to keep in mind when you're trying to treat your business as a business and not, and not a side hustle? Um, another thing you have to keep on your mind is just um, the legal aspects of it, making sure um, you have it registered to an LLC or S-Corp, whatever your preference is and whatever the use of your business is, and just making sure that you and your business are separated. Because oftentimes I'll see people like um, post a lot of their business stuff on maybe their personal Instagram page or like it's hard to distinguish the difference between you and the business that you want the business to be by itself. Don't get me wrong. People want to know the, the CEO or the owner, whatever the case may be, and, you know, draw connections to that. But at the same time, you want to make sure if anything happens to your business, you have already legal documentation that's going to separate your business from you so that way worst case scenario someone sues you they can only sue your business and whatever is tied to that and not it over to you so when you say separating sorry go ahead when you say separating yourself from the business do you mm-hmm. think like do you believe in personal brands Just i believe in person I, I definitely believe in personal brands um me, myself, I think with me and McClellan Capital, it's still a personal brand. I did make a business page for it. I do try to differentiate it, but it's still me. Like, I'm still the face of it because I do do a lot of um videos. Um, I started getting into TikTok. So it's tricky. I think it also varies on what type of business it is. Some businesses are required to have your face in it all the time. 
So it's tricky, but I do believe in personal brand, but even with personal brand, you still need to get the right documentation and still need to, at least from a legal aspect, separate it. From a visual aspect, it varies, but from a legal aspect, I still believe you should separate um, you and the business. When it came to deciding LLC versus S-Corp, what did you decide to go with and, and why? Um, I decided to go with LLC. Um, S-Corp, I think it's, it's more on the end where like, you have a, a larger amount of employees and things of that nature, like large amount of assets. And LLC, they have a lot of good um, tax benefits in the long run. And most importantly, I'll be honest, I wasn't even going to get an LLC until I seen how much trouble you can get with the IRS. Because, <laughs> you know, in this country, you're not, a, you're not allowed to just make money and not pay taxes. So once I seen that, I'm like, all right, let me get an LLC. So at least if my businesses do blow up, they can't say I've been getting mad money for X amount of time not paying taxes. So that was my biggest thing with the that I lean toward the LLC. S-Corp, maybe down the line, if I ever get like a crazy amount of employees, but I'm personally not at that level yet. And real quick, I just had the, I wanted to ask about, um, you mentioned how you kind of had to evolve your personality as you mm -hmm. left college and had to, you know, be a little more outgoing, be a little more extroverted. What was that process right. like of, of kind of forcing yourself to get uncomfortable and get step out of your comfort zone? So with that process, believe it or not, it wasn't that hard. I'm the type of person, like, I know that being uncomfortable should be a good thing because that's when you're going to force it the best out of you because if you live a life that's comfortable sure you're not going to ruffle feathers and you might feel okay but you're not constantly pushing your limits you're not pushing your intelligence your resilience um and you're not pushing your ideas as hard so for me i'm like okay if i really want this brand to continue to expand i gotta start going out i gotta start networking i gotta start meeting other people on the party scene night scene entrepreneurship and those, those are skills you're going to need as a business owner too. Networking, knowing how to um, interact with new people on the spot and things of that nature. Um, having business cards, um, knowing how to talk to someone without coming off like a car salesman. So I knew like with, with this business, it's going to force better qualities out of me. So I'm always willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable, if that makes sense. I'm always willing to do that because I know at the other side of discomfort, at the other side of fear are, are all the things you want out of life. So with talking about being uncomfortable and mm -hmm. being okay with that, can you talk about like how you went about leaving your nine to five and doing full-time entrepreneurship? Because I feel like that is a very, like people deem it as risky and I'm pretty sure it's uncomfortable. Right. All right. So here's the story with the nine to five. And it's funny because a lot of people don't even know I work, which I found that hilarious. So basically. Yeah, I didn't know either <laughs> for a while. <laughs> So basically, that, that's the thing about me. I can post in a way that I'm giving you a lot of information, but I'm not giving you a lot of personal information. So with the, the 9 to 5, so I worked at uh, Best Buy as a delivery parcel driver. So you know how Amazon has delivery services? Best Buy has that too. So that's what I was doing. Um, so with that job right there, first things first, before that job, I never had a job for more than like three months at a time. My friends would always laugh at me because I would just quit whenever I get I got angry or because you know when you work at certain jobs you got people that are in charge of you that you know in real life should not be in charge of you. You see what I'm saying? It's like I always feel like the people that are in certain positions with certain jobs are people that never had no power or got bullied as kids. 
And now they're on a power trip and just going crazy. I've worked at like for holiday season at Macy's, which was disastrous. Never again. Retail, never again. Um, I worked at multiple sporting events, which are always fun. But with the the Best Buy job, I told myself, because I this whole time I've been living off of my investments from the stock market. And I realized I was hustling backwards because I would get a job, quit, then live off stocks. Then if the stock market was doing bad or my, my trades were doing bad, I would go back, get another job. If my trades are lit again, quit the job. I don't need it no more. But I was like, yo, instead of me to keep taking money out of the market for my lifestyle, how about I just get a job, use that for bills, and use the money I'm getting from the market to put into my other businesses or invest into myself. So that was the game plan of the Best Buy job. I was there for a year and a half. And to me, that was long. To this day, my friends didn't even believe I worked at Best Buy. They would call me. I'm like, I'm at work. They're like, you don't work. I'm like, all right, whatever. I'm about to prove to you I have a job. So with that job right there, it showed me a lot, to be honest. It showed me that um, it was, it, it was definitely uncomfortable, people telling you what to do and stuff like that. I was a good worker, but it was still like, I just felt like, I have this weird thing where like, if you're going to tell me what to do, you need to be at a certain level or like be at a certain end goal. That's just me personally. So after the job, there was very more like, because you're around people that are like, in their 40s, whatever the case may be. And it feels like they just thrown the white flag on their life. Like they're just content with going up one rank as a manager and whatever the case may be. And they're like twice or three times your age. That was very sad for me to see on a day-to-day basis. Another thing that was very uncomfortable about that job was I was still trade making trades in the stock market with, with call options. So I have days where I would make like a thousand and thirty minutes and while driving. And I'm like, damn. For me to make a thousand with this job is going to take me till next week, so that was very like it forced me to to learn that this is what like a lot of people are going through, and I need to appreciate the money I make way more now. It showed me a lot of different things. I didn't even know how to use PTO until this year, like earlier this year. I didn't know what PTO was. I didn't know like you got to call out of work. Like I didn't know none of that. I didn't know no job mannerisms at all. So it was cool to see that perspective of a nine to five. But even so, I've never been someone that bashes nine to five. I've always told people, like, no, use your nine to five. Um, take that seriously. But what, what's important is what you do outside of your nine to five. That's what I've always stressed to people. And I hate seeing entrepreneurs bash nine to fives because 90% of your, the people that buy your products or services are people that have nine to five. So that doesn't make sense to bash it. And most importantly, having a nine to five and also um, working on your dreams outside of it is very important because it shows, like, for you to get to a certain level, you got to utilize your time better. I've always told people, I don't think I'm better than no other human being. I think I do use my 24 hours better than people. So anytime I clocked out for Best Buy, I come home, shower, I'm right at my desk, preparing trades for the next day, working on business plans, um, doing a lot of research. So I'm, I was someone that really did not sleep that much. But I mean, it paid, it paid off now. Cause I'm oh yeah, it definitely, <laughs> it, it definitely is paying off now. It definitely is paying off now. And it's um, I enjoyed the journey. I think a lot of people like the conclusion or the finish line of certain things, but the journey is important. The journey is going to build your character. The journey is going to teach you to appreciate things a lot more. So I love the journey. I wasn't um like shameful that I worked the nine to five. Like if people ask me, I would tell you. I think Key, you asked me like one time if I work for nothing like way back. I'm like, yeah, I work at a Best Buy, and you were just shocked. So yes, yeah, so I've never been shameful of it or anything like that. I just know like. For me to get to my destination, this is the stepping stool I have to use. A lot of people don't want the stepping stool. People just want to jump to the conclusion and 
be at the finish line or say, hey, I left my nine to five. Nah, you got to get there first. You gotta, if you're not a hard worker at a nine to five, what makes you think you're going to be a hard worker for your personal business? I think people have that mindset because of like social media, like especially Instagram. You see so many people leaving a nine to five and like going mm-hmm. viral and then leaving. But there's so much other stuff that people right. don't see behind the scenes to get to that point. Yeah. But people, social a lot of people media. don't showcase mm-hmm. that journey. So I think that's exactly. So social media has a lot of smoke screen. People only show the finished product. And sometimes it's not even their reality. They might just paint that narrative. You see what I'm saying? It's just social media is tricky. You got to be careful with social media. Um, don't feed into it too much. And most importantly, don't compare yourself to nobody. Um, like uh, comparison is a thief of joy. Don't compare yourself to nobody. I have a lot of entrepreneur friends, a lot of millionaire friends. I'm never comparing it to the point where it's like I'm looking at their page 300 to my page two. They're on page 300 because they put the time, effort, and work into it. So even though they're way ahead of me, I can't compare it. I don't know how much suffering they went through behind the scenes. You see what I'm saying? And I say the same thing when people look at me in a certain light. I'm like, I'm still a regular person. I just maybe use my time differently. Anything I'm doing is not impossible. So don't ever compare your page three to someone else's page 300. Everybody's writing their book at a different pace. And the, the path you're on is your path for a reason. So you might as well take the time, learn as much as you can along the way, and keep using the skills learned. One thing I've noticed, certain people on their path, they're not learning anything. They're still stubborn. They're still ignorant to certain things because they're not focused on the path. They keep looking what this person is doing. How can I get over there? How can I get to this finish line? Like, no, run your race at your own pace. Simple, simple stuff. Simple stuff, but hard to execute. Yeah, simple yeah stuff, hard, but hard easy said than done for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, can you take us through some of your, you talked about how early your pops gave you $300 and you um, use them, put that money in the stock market and learned mm-hmm. about stocks and, and trading and stuff. Can you yeah. tell us about how you don't, um, how you did your research to figure out what stocks to invest in, what what to invest in, and what L's you t- took and what dubs you took also? Right. Yeah, definitely. So early on, um, the, 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 of course, the first step was just teaching yourself what exactly is the stock market, how it functions, and things of that nature. So I spent a ridiculous amount of hours on YouTube University, constantly watching videos. Uh, I ordered a lot of books from Amazon. And I just took like a good three months just locked in because once again, I was still irritated by losing in that mock stock trial class in high school. And I'm someone I hate losing. Like even if it's just a card game, like it really irritates me. I'd rather not even play if I feel like I'm going to lose. I'm that type of person. So that vengeance to like succeed at stocks is what propelled me into getting into it in the first place. So it was countless amount of hours on YouTube at the beginning of it. Now, as far as learning what companies to invest in, that took a few years, believe it or not. I was very stubborn. Even though I knew how stocks function, I didn't know which companies to invest in just yet. Like one of my biggest regrets was this company called AMD, Advanced Micro Devices. So they manufacture microchips. At the time I bought them, they were like $12, something like that. I bought like, this is like five months into investing. I think I spent like $600 in total on them. And I had a lot of shares. The stock didn't move much. It went from 12 to 14, dropped down to seven, and just fluctuated. So I got irritated and just gave up on them and sold out my position. In profit, not much profit, but still in profit. Today, AMD, I think, is worth over $100 a share. So you see how just like, learning to be patient, learning to see, because 
I had the right game plan with advanced micro devices, AMD. They're my, they're a microchip company. They make microchips for like high tech computers, game systems. Even when you see those self checkout cashiers, those require microchips too. And the whole world is going towards um a computerized system. When you see these high tech computers for cryptocurrency and things of that nature. So I had the right idea, but I didn't have the maturity. So you can know what company to invest in, but if you still don't have the maturity, continue to hold that stock, that information is useless still. So it's not always only about information. That's definitely an important aspect, knowing which company to invest in. But do you yourself have the resilience to be patient? And early on, um, when I started investing, I definitely did not have that resilience. I was constantly buying this company, selling out if I feel it's not um, functioning right. Because there's a lot of stocks where like, they're increasing on a year-to-year -year basis. But on a day-to-day -day basis, they might be dropping, fluctuating. So you got to know which companies to hold and which companies to like flip or swing trade. And yeah, you said also sure. um, the gains I was getting. Yeah. So as far as the gains, believe it or not, I took a lot of L's early on. And that was another thing too. I'm glad I started with a smaller amount of money, like 300 times, 600 times, of those type of amounts. If I would have came into stocks with the amount of money I play around today, I definitely would not be trading stocks no more. I hear a lot of horror stories where someone said they brought in $5,000, bought this company, lost the whole thing, and, it, and they don't like stocks no more. The issue with that is a lot of people go into it. They can have money, but they don't have the right information or the patience. So if you coming in with a crazy amount of money, of course, you're not going to want to trade stocks no more or any other investment, real estate, um, crypto, whatever the case may be, running a business. If you come in with a large amount of money, you don't know what you're doing. You're automatically going to be turned off from it. So for me, I'm glad I started with a, a small amount of money and worked my way up. Because if you can master any 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 um, asset class with a smaller amount of money, there's no difference when you have a large amount of money. So if you know what to do with $300, there's no difference with $3,000. 300,000. The amount of money changes, but the mentality doesn't change. So all the mistakes I made with dealing with $300, $500, I learned all those mistakes. So now when I have 3,000 on the play, 5,000 on the play, I'm not making those mistakes. And don't get me wrong, I still make mistakes. I think the worst day in the stock market was, I think it was 2019, so in 2019, I lost like $17,000 in a day in like a span of 24 hours. Because at first it was like 4000 then 10000 Like I was just doing what we call revenge trades. It's like where you make a trade, you lose money. Now you're so focused on getting back to that money that you're not even following your proper procedure and structure and game plan when it comes to um, trading stocks. And believe it or not, this is when I knew stocks was for me. That day I lost the $17,000 because I was just drinking orange juice and watching anime. Because like with that type of investment right there like you have to be okay with the outcome with the money you put into the stock market you should be okay if it goes to zero so you shouldn't put nothing in you're comfortable losing i'm not, I'm not saying you should be comfortable losing 17 bands i was still tight but at the same time it's like that's what you signed up for you made this mistake so you got to stand on that mistake because when i have those days where i'm making five bands in a day i'm taking all the glory so when I so when I have a bad day, you got to take all the L's too. You got to be able to take both. I think people only want the the good things in life. That's not a realistic way to live. You take the good with the bad. The bad can help you learn to the point where when you get the good, you know what to do with it. You see what I'm saying?
I think that's that's just life. You got to learn how to not get too high with the highs and then kind of write out the lows. But right. if it stops it working, that low may be for a long ass time. So definitely got to have exactly. the resiliency to um, push through that. Um, can you talk about going and getting into like NFTs, crypto? I feel like stocks people feel like are safer, but crypto and the NFTs are kind of newer mm-hmm. and people feel like they're risky and don't know too much about it. Right. So with um with crypto, so that whole category is summarized as Web three, just the the new age of the internet, basically. So with that, believe it or not, I got into it at the end. We're in twenty twenty two. I got into it at the end of twenty twenty one. I was always aware of it and kept hearing about it. I'm like, this is gonna be a big thing, but I didn't take the time to actually start studying it and learning it until like towards the end of like November of twenty twenty one. So from November twenty twenty one to like around February of this year, constant. A lot of studying. And once again, it's a new space. Um, so regarding it, it um, me personally, I just wanted to learn it first. Once I learned it and seen what it was, I'm like, okay, I definitely need to be involved in this for sure. Started buying NFTs, flipping and trading NFTs, making money. I also lost a lot of money too. I made a lot of big mistakes that I, that I mentioned in my ebook. And that, that's, that's another reason I made the ebook. So it could be a better gateway into um, NFT and just Web3 as a whole. So I draw that comparison of Web3 the same way I draw the comparison of stocks. Back then, when I started stocks in 2015, it wasn't popular as it is now. Like, it wasn't a lot of people, a lot of young people talking about stocks. The only people I knew that were talking about stocks in my age group were, like, um, some white kids in Stanford. It wasn't, like, the trend, if that makes sense. You see how you see a lot of um, influencers in the finance space it was none of that back then in 2015 it was literally me talking to people and they were just like why would i do stocks in that risk isn't that gambling so i'm seeing the same thing again with web3 but the only problem is web3 is a fresh new space where it gives the creators um more leverage so what so let me give you the history of, of the internet so web1 was the old internet you know the old computers where you started up and it makes that sound effect as it's loading that was Web 1, where the internet was almost a law. Whatever was on the internet, you couldn't alter or change it. That's Web 1. Web 2 is the era of the YouTube, the TikTok, the Instagram, where now their creators can have adjust their own internet, in a sense. You can have 100,000 followers, and people buy whatever services through your link. You can have a YouTube channel where people are seeing your content. You can make businesses. But the only problem with Web 2 was it became monopolized. Facebook bought WhatsApp, bought Instagram, took Snapchat out of business by adding videos to the story. Twitter is dominating and and they're allowed to block um, someone like Trump from using their platform. So it became monopolized. So only the people at the top really benefited the most from Web 2. Now, Web 3 is a whole different game since everything is decentralized. So it's computerized to the point where no one's in charge of it. It's just on its own. So no government, no entity is in charge of Web 3 on decentralized platform like Bitcoin and other platforms like that. With this platform right here, what makes it different is the creators have more leverage. So for example, let's say you guys want to make an NFT for this podcast, this platform. Every um, person that has been interviewed on this platform, you would give them uh, a unique NFT. And what would happen is maybe you guys want to do something where the utilization for that NFT is in the future, if you guys throw like a party event, everybody that came, you're not allowed to get in unless you you purchase this NFT. And in the future, when you guys blow up, because I'm pretty sure you guys are going to blow up, especially with all the phenomenal people you guys interview, 
in the future, when you guys have a large audience that wants to um, all watch these interviews at the same time, you might release a new set of NFTs to the point where you can't watch this special guest today unless you have this NFT. And then they can have it and they, they, they can sell it as well. And each transaction, you guys will get 10% royalty. That's how the NFTs work right there. So each transaction, the creator, the originator that put out the NFT is getting percentage of it. So you see how people make um, a business or art plan. It can just be stolen, whatever the case may be. You don't get no credit. That's different NFTs. If you create, you're getting 10% every transaction forever. So that's the cool thing about Web3 is decentralized, gives the creators more leverage. And once again, it's a new space. It is absolutely risky. There are a lot of scams and things like that. But those are just things. That's part of life. There's No matter what's going on in life, there's always people doing it incorrectly. There's always a few bad apples. I think the most important thing is making sure you're educated to be aware of red flags. The same way where you have an email and you know it's a scam or it's a phishing attempt and they want you to click on the link, you did, you have the knowledge to know, okay, this should be my spam folder. It's the same thing with um, Web3. You just got to be aware and be able to point out um, certain red flags and stay away from them. But as far as Web3 as a whole, I absolutely think the Black community definitely needs to get on board with it, start creating on it. Um, cause it, it's blowing up. I've been to NFT in New York city earlier this year. I met up with a lot of creators and CEOs of these companies. I'm actually working with one of them. I'm announcing it later on in the year, but I'm working with one of them. I'm not going to say the name of it, but there's a lot of big things that are moving and shaking in the NFT and just web three space as a whole that people need to get behind. Like five years from now, people are going to come back on my Instagram page, scroll down and be like, yo, this guy was right. So for people who, like, after hearing that explanation of what you can do with NFTs, like, I understand it because, like, I spoke to you about it. I read about it myself. But can you give, like, another way in, like, layman Mm -hmm. terms on how NFTs work? Like, what it is and, like, an analogy for it? Oh, yeah. So the favorite one I love to use is, first of all, let's define what NFT stands for. Non-fungible token. Something that is fungible is something that can be interchanged for the same value. For example, okay, if you give me a dollar, I can give you back four quarters, um, 10 dimes, 100 pennies, because the dollar is fungible. Now, NFTs are non-fungible. That means each NFT is a one of one. Even when you see the bored apes, like the monkeys, if you look at them closely, all of them have different characteristics about them. They might have a gold chain, a different color, but they're all one of one. You cannot find a duplicate of it. So with that right there, then um, non-fungible. So what what adds the value to these NFTs? Why should people spend hundreds, thousands, or a hundred thousand on these pictures of monkeys? The first things first: NFTs are not only pictures. NFTs can be audio, can be music, can be experiences, can be real estate. It's just that the monkeys get the most hype because that's what people want to talk about because it's the most ridiculous thing. And it is ridiculous. I, I never thought I'd see the day where I'm spending $1,000 on pictures of animals, but we're here, you know what I'm saying? But I just want to make people, make sure people know it's not just the pictures, the visualization, it's the experiences too. And one cool thing about um, the Board Ape NFTs is when you have one, you're invited to these yacht parties and large networking events with other millionaires. Because you got to think about it. The only people that can afford them are people that are like, either celebrities or business owners or people that have a large amount of money. Now, once you get it, not only are you getting more attention, not only are you allowed to market it, you're also invited to these events too. It's like a social club. It's nothing different from what we've seen with collections of Pokemon cards, Birkin bags, sneaker collections. It's just one of those things that humans do to um, with clubs and just um, 
whatchamacallit, what's the word, like involvement, you see what I'm saying? It's not a new concept. The only concept that's new is that it's digital, it's on the internet. So that's why people find it ridiculous. But back to what I was saying, so NFTs, um, non-fungible token, they're all one of one. And once again, it gives um, power to the creators and the purchasers of these NFTs. You can buy an NFT and you can set it for whatever price you want to set it for. And if someone's willing to buy it for you, that's fine. I think the most important thing is what kind of NFT are you buying? Don't just go out there freestyling. Does the NFT have a good community? Are the creators constantly upgrading and adding things? Most importantly, that I always emphasize is utilization. If you buy this NFT, what are the benefits that you can do with it? I think that's something people miss, the benefits. An NFT has to have great utilization. It should be something where if you buy, maybe you get into concerts for free if you have the NFT or you get invited to certain events. Utilization is going, always going to be the number one key when it comes to NFTs. Sure, the artwork could look cool. Sure, it could be a trendy thing because other celebrities are buying it. But the utilization should be the number one priority when it comes to NFTs. So if the NFT has great utilization, maybe it gives you free Starbucks stock or whatever the case may be. You need to find out, does this utilization make sense? Is it a real utilization? And um, the benefits of it. So I think the utilization aspect, if we focus on that, we're going to see there are a lot of great NFTs that people don't know about. I forgot the name of it, but there's one that I bought where it gives you discounts on um, private jets on empty legs. So empty legs are like one-way flights where the jet has to return to the original airport it came from. So usually those those um, flights will give out empty legs. That just means the plane's empty. If you want to get a discounted seat on this jet, it could be maybe $2,000, whatever the case may be. Now, this NFT project, it gives you discount for like $800, whatever the case may be. If, you, if that's in your budget and you want to experience a private jet, if you have that NFT, you'll automatically get a discount on top of that discount. So the number one thing, again, with NFTs is utilization. And believe it or not, that jet NFT I told you about, no one has been talking about it. Because the, the NFTs that have good utilization, people are not going to talk about it. It's all the stupidity, the monkey, the, the hype that's going to get the most attention and usually have the least amount of utilization. <laughs> and this is stuff that you, you bring. It. Can you tell us a little more about um, the NFT breakdown and, and how, how that started and what you discussed in that ebook to kind of help right. people make better decisions for purchasing mm -hmm. NFTs? Yeah, because so um, after I learned NFTs, started buying into them, uh, fell into a lot of scams and something else called rug pulls. So rug pulls are where people will create an NFT, lie about the utilization that it's going to have, hype it up, pay for marketing. Like these people that are scamming, this new era of scamming is through the roof. These people have time and energy. They'll get like um, Billboard's place on 42nd Street. They'll make the NFT look legit. But never, if you notice, they never really talk much about the utilization. They just talk about what they're going to do. And then what happens is when a large amount of people um, buy the NFTs on its release date, quote, which is called the mint date, they'll basically just run away with the money. And now the value of it goes down. And even if you sell it, the person that created it is still getting 10% every transaction, even though it's a scam. So those are rug pulls. Those are scams. There's a lot of things that... um. Um, that I fell towards at the beginning of it because I wasn't privy to it. And I'm glad I did fall for it because I'm the type of person I do learn off my mistakes. I'm not really good with like taking other people's advice. I mean, it's tricky. I'm, I'm a good learner when I learn off my mistakes, but the best way of learning is learning off of other people's mistakes. So that was my original um, game plan with the ebook. 
I'm like, if I'm going to be talking about NFTs and just Web3 as a whole, I can't just do it without um, also making you aware of the red flags. So that was one of the more important things with the ebook, making sure people don't fall for the same expensive mistakes I made. I think I lost like $2,000 just the first 30 days buying NFTs. It was ridiculous. So I wanted to make sure if I'm going to be breaking this down and um, putting people on, let me also make sure they're aware of the red flags and they're privy to it. So the NFT um, breakdown, that was the, the main catalyst for it. And also, importantly, teaching people in a way that they can digest. Even with stock market investing, when I was learning it, the way people break it down, if you ever YouTube a video breakdown about stock, maybe now it's different, but back then in 2015, people broke it down in a very, like, a way that, like, you wouldn't want to be interested in, like a very boring way. What I do when I'm teaching finance, I make it more, like, um, realistic. Like, like I give you real life example that you can actually understand. I don't, and I also try to not use as much vocabulary from that asset class. So I don't say things like mint date or share price. I try to just use normal terms you would use on a daily basis. And then once you're learning, I say, okay, replace this word with the correct word. You see what I'm saying? That's how I do it. So that's the same thing with the NFT breakdown. I just made, I broke down everything, um, every aspect of NFT from buying to reselling to what platforms to use, to what red flags to be aware of. I, I, I took a lot of time with that ebook and that, that's basically what it was because me personally, I be teaching people how to trade their money for more money because we all were raised to trade time for money, which is okay at the beginning. But as you get older, you want to take back some of that time to do whatever you want, spend time with family, pursue your, your hobbies, whatever the case may be. So we got to master the art of trading time. I mean, um, trading money for more money and keeping your time to do something else. So that's always been the biggest thing about me. I could always be selfish and just stop teaching people. Because all my businesses, if you know, they, they don't require me to interact with people that much. But I enjoy teaching. I love when I have clients that come back to me, whether they took my um, consultation or ebook or online class, and they come back to me and say, hey, I'm making this amount of money. I didn't realize that before. That's the best feeling for me. Whether they give me the credit or not, there's plenty of people that never give me credit publicly, but they'll tell me privately. I just, I just love seeing that I had that impact where you can now learn how to trade money for more money. That's the biggest thing about me, and that was another catalyst for the ebook. Love it. No, I, th I think that I think that's great. Um, key, key, put me on to what you're, what you're, what you're doing, and I was like, oh, that that's real cool, especially coming from your background and and how you started and where you're at right now. Mm -hmm. Um, can you tell us a little more about? And thank you, Key. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> can, you <laughs> can you tell us a little more about um, Macongo Capital and the and the services that you provide? Yeah, so Macongo Capital. I think I started about two years ago because during the pandemic is when I really started teaching people. So I would usually talk about finance and things like that, and just give out free games. But during the pandemic is when I, because everybody had the pandemic money, that's when I'm like, okay, y'all got to do something with the pandemic money. So believe it or not, before the pandemic, I used to teach people stocks for free. I would post it and believe it or not, nobody would really take advantage of it. I think I only taught two people stocks while I was teaching for free. And I don't, I'm not even sure if they even utilize the information. Because the problem with the back, black community is we don't take nothing free serious. That's the problem with the black community. So during the pandemic, I started charging people $20. And then it started building up slowly and slowly like that. And then I'm like, okay, let me also make a 
company that's only about finance and the things I do on a regular basis. So that's where Mokongo Capital um, started off right there, just teaching people finance. So if you go on Mokongo Capital, I haven't posted out there on there recently because I'm working on a few new businesses currently at the moment. But I'm talking about stocks. I'm talking about um, crypto, NFTs, um, Web3 as a whole. And there's going to be other asset class coming on to it. There's going to be people that I'm hiring that are specialized in specific asset classes um, from real estate to vending machines. So Macomba Capital as a whole is just geared towards finance and teaching people different avenues of finance and how to navigate through them as well. Can you talk about how you transitioned from offering the free information into providing like actual consultations and that experience? I think you learned from that and how people responded to it. Oh yeah, so um, so how I transitioned from how I transitioned was once again I was doing it for free. Nobody was taking it seriously. In the pandemic, um, I was doing it for twenty dollars. People started taking it seriously, and then I'm like, people kept telling me like, "Yo, the information you're giving us, it's you should be charging way more." Everybody kept telling me that, but I didn't really care about making the money. I just the only reason I even started charging people is because I can't let people waste my time. So if I'm gonna talk to you for two hours. I need to at least be compensated something so it don't feel like a waste. Because I don't know if you're going to take the information seriously or not. Because there's plenty of people that took it seriously and made a crazy amount of money. And there's plenty of people that they just didn't use the, the information. And I'm not in charge of if you want to use the information. Or not. I'm just here to make sure you had the opportunity. That's what I want to do. So I started charging people $20 during the pandemic. It was becoming successful. Then I had to increase the price because people kept telling me, like, yo, the information you gave me, like, I've been trying to learn stocks from Mad Long on YouTube. The way you broke it down, you should be charged way more. So I bumped the price only up to 40 and people were still buying it. And around that time period, um, I don't know if you know someone from New York named Lavish Ruby. She's like a, a multimillionaire and also a finance influencer, too. So she gave me a shout out because me and her have been friends for a long time. She gave me a shout out. She was like, if you want to learn stocks the right way, hit up my jig on Instagram. So that caused everything to explode to the point where I had to make um actual schedule and like it took up my whole time during the pandemic i was teaching people in australia the uk other sides of the world like i would have like back-to-back calls all day it got to the point where i started sleeping halfway through some of my consultations because i just had so much every day like i did not pace myself i did not know like the how much of the volume would like i didn't think it'd be that successful i just i just thought i'd probably teach people stocks once or twice a week, it became to the point where I would have like four to five consultations every single day, Monday through Sunday. Like I definitely burned myself out. And then that propelled me to want to make um, an online course for stock market investing that's geared towards beginners. And I started doing that as well. Um, and then people, I learned that some people still prefer teaching like verbally or through Zoom rather than learning online because everybody's a different learner. So I wanted to make sure I still geared towards everybody. The only problem was I was very turned off from the consultations because it was just, it became too much. Like if you talk to someone, different people every day about the same topic, it's going to take a toll on you over time. And at the same time, once again, I'm big on trading your money for more money. But with this consultation thing, I was not getting time back for it. Like I was giving away my time for money. So I wanted to, so I increased the consultation price to 500. And that was one of my best decisions because one thing I've noticed is the clients that are willing to pay more are usually less problematic. The people that only pay like um, for $40, $20, they gave me the most problem. They asked the most questions. Even if I broke it down, they would call me at any time during the day. So I had to be disciplined 
can just go with the the clients that are willing to pay more. And they, they were, I still had a lot of clients still paying me at $500. So that's when I learned like the people that want the most out of life, they're going to invest into themselves regardless of the price. You see what I'm saying? So that was um a big component for that. Um, now, how do people react to it? There was always people complaining no matter what. When I bumped it to $40, I'm like, yo, I told you about this when it was free. Why are you upset that it's $40? It's been like six months from when it was free and now $40. And then people were complaining when I bumped it to $500. But at the end of the day, it's like you got to also respect and value yourself. That's one thing I had to learn. You have to value yourself too. If you want to be a, a business person, be a CEO, be a millionaire, whatever the case may be, you have to carry yourself in that manner too. You have to make sure you want you you're dealing with high level clients, especially if you're giving out high level services too. That's one thing I learned because I take my craft seriously, so I would like serious clients as well. So yeah, you're gonna ruffle a few feathers, but the clients that are gonna complain about your prices, you probably don't need to be doing business with them. That's the truth. I agree, and I think that with your brand, you in your business, you have different tiers for every like financial level so and also you get you get what mm -hmm. you pay for so like Absolutely. the lower price point things you're probably going to mm -hmm. put in more time that person's probably going to put in more time to learn it but if you pay for the 500 i'm pretty sure the 500 mm -hmm. consultation i'm pretty sure like you'll give them more attention because it's a higher right. price point it's more value mm -hmm. so it's it's all go it all goes back to you get what you pay for so if you want something lower value be mm -hmm. ready to put the time in to do it kind of on your own Exactly. Yeah. If you can't take something at the, the the lower price point and like soak up that information, there's no point in you paying the, the higher level. You see what I'm saying? And I, I still keep all those prices. I still got the, the the online stock course for beginners. I still got the consultations for 500. People are, are now telling me I need to bump the 500 to 1,000 because of the information I'm giving. But I'm going to just keep it there. I'm not I'm not trying to squeeze money out the black community, if that makes sense. I want people to actually learn the stuff. I'm not here to squeeze and like try to like just, I don't like people that use other people to step on them to get to a higher level. I personally don't think you need to do that to be a millionaire or be successful in life. What I want is for people to actually learn the information correctly. So I'm gonna keep my prices where they're at. People, even with the ebook I dropped with the NFTs, I only charged like a hundred dollars and people were still saying, oh, my friends, saying like yo you should have charged like 200 i'm like i'm not charging that much for an ebook on a new space new topic people don't know about because once again i'm not trying to squeeze money i don't want to be a what i call a course guru you know those entrepreneurial influences on instagram where they have nothing but courses they're broadcasting all day and there's nothing wrong with that i'm not knocking it but i just feel like you should be doing what you're promoting in your courses in real life that's what i feel like so my main source of income is not the courses it's definitely a plus. I'm not going to lie and say I don't make money off of it. But at the same time, I don't necessarily need it. I'm trying to make sure people are learning it and they can put themselves in a position to make money as well. So that's where it is with the courses. And I also, I like remembering where I came from too. There was a time point where I definitely could not afford a $500 conversation or something like that. So I, want, I make sure there's something at every price point. You know what I'm saying? And also, Everybody's at a different page in their life. Some people might have kids and have work and might not have the time for a conversation. So then you have the online version where you can work at it on your own pace. Maybe if you have time and you want to learn more, then you might bump up the consultation, things like that. So I try to make sure there's something for everybody, whether it's online learning, whether it's an ebook, you can learn at your own pace, whether it's one-on-one -on -one consultation on Zoom with me. 
and things of that nature. So I've got all different price points because you got to remember everybody's at a different place. I think that's the biggest thing people that are starting to become successful entrepreneurship forget. They forget that people that have a nine to five, they might not be in a position to pay $200 for your services right now. Especially if they're making maybe a thousand to two thousand a week and they have kids or family, you gotta be realistic and understand and like put yourself in their shoes. And I think that's something a lot of successful people tend to forget. So I'm trying to make sure I never forget that. And I think utilizing courses allows you to reach those people, but also kind of look out for yourself. Cause like you said, you got burnt mm -hmm. out on the consultations. Having a right. course, it allows you to scale to an infinite, I mean, um, any type of people. I don't know the word mm -hmm. I'm looking for right now. <laughs> but as oh, many yeah, yeah. people just, have... Just branch out, yeah. Exactly. So there's no limit to the amount of people you can help with the course, but with the consultations, you're kind of limited on your time. You only have 24 hours a day. So at some point, exactly. you're going to tap out. So I think it, it works for both parties, both the consumer and the creator. So I like it. And the, and the best thing about courses, too, and I see why people become course gurus, you're only working on it once. That's the craziest part. You're working on it once, and if it's good enough, you just leave it on the internet forever, and it's going to keep making money. So that's, that's the cool thing about it. But at the same time, once again, I'm not, me personally, I'm not trying to squeeze the black community for their money. Like, I'm starting new businesses, and I know for sure are going to be successful, but I don't plan on making courses for every single business thing I do. Because then it's going to come off like you're just trying to squeeze money on people. Don't get me wrong. If people request a course, I'll make it, but the only courses I and, and ebooks and things that I did was stocks and Web3 because those are my favorites personally. You see what I'm saying? I know people, I'm not going to call out no name. There's certain entrepreneur out there. He has a course for every single thing. And I'm not even sure if he really does it or not. I, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that they just make money off their courses rather than the actual asset class they teach. But, you know, to each their own, everybody has their preferences. So I'm not here to knock my place hustle. Like you said, there's a lot of there's a lot of wealth out there to be to be shared. Like however people gotta get mm -hmm. it, they, they can get it, they can get it their way. Exactly. Um, I had a question about mm -hmm. you you mentioned about you kind of building Macongo Capital during the pandemic. And then we're talking mm -hmm. about market then versus market now. What were some of the trends you saw during the pandemic of people, how people were spending their money and how what are you thinking about now, two years later? So back then, the way people were spending their money was ridiculous. So there's this, there's like this designer store called Saks Fifth Avenue. So I shopped there from time to time. Before the pandemic, I wouldn't really see a lot of like young people my age. During the pandemic, literally everything was sold out. Every time I would go there, it'd be a lot of people in my age group. But obviously, they were using money they were not supposed to be using. That's the only thing. That, that was one thing that was very concerning to me, even though I made a lot of jokes about it. I would always say, like, yo, the people you see that are getting money right now and living a flashy lifestyle due to the pandemic, they're not going to be doing this a year from today. And I was right. I was seeing classy Azul bottles, Dior sneakers, round trips to Miami, Atlanta, people standing on couches in the club. And I was just like, wow, we are literally watching the circus right now. Y'all got some money and went crazy with it. And it was in a fashion that didn't make sense. Like, okay, let's say with the PVP loan scam, you get the $20,000. Not only did you use your real address, so that way if the IRS ever wants to audit you, you actually gave them information on where you live. People were like, just like, they weren't very or wise with the money. Like, okay, let's say you did get the PPP loan for $20,000. 
what I would have done was actually make a business. So if anything comes back, at least you legit had an LLC to support it. Because then they can't do nothing about it because you actually use it for business. People didn't have LLCs or any type of documentation that I mentioned at the start of this podcast to separate themselves in the business. So now if the IRS wants to probe you, you never made a different a difference between you and your entity. So now they can sue you and you can be go to jail on criminal charges because you did not separate yourself in the business, whether you had the business or not. An LLC was only like, it's only like $250. Yeah, these people had $20,000 and didn't think about no ramifications for it. And even with the $20,000, I did see a few people um, maybe blow 10 and use the other 10 to invest in themselves. That's smart. That's smart to me. So at least you put some thought in yourself for the future. Now, the people that just went straight to buying the Euro sneakers, Azul bottles, Cartier diamond watches, that was the, the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. People were icing out the, the Cartier watches. The Cartier watches cost around like the cheapest one base level is like around seven to eight thousand dollars. They would ice it out so that with the with the diamonds it comes out to seventeen thousand dollars. But the problem with that is, and this is why I personally don't put diamonds on any watches. When you put aftermarket diamonds on the watches, it deteriorates the price because you're drilling holes into these um watches that are done by these um Swiss brands. So when you come back and try to sell a Cartier watch, even though you pay seventeen to twenty thousand dollars for it. You're not going to get back. You'll be lucky to get back $10,000. So that's damn near 50% profit just gone right there. Because you're so focused on being flashy and impressing other people. You see what I'm saying? If you ever look at millionaires, their watches don't have no diamonds. Because those watches hold value. Because when Rolex, Audemars, Piguet, Patrick Philippe, uh, Richard Mille, when they make these watches, there's a set amount of them they're making for each series. So when they're done making that series and they don't let you know when they're going to be done, the value goes up because they're not going to make a new version of that anymore. But when you put diamonds on it, the only person that's benefiting is the jeweler. The jeweler knows people are fools to put diamonds on it. And they capitalize off that because for some strange reason, our generation enjoys being flashy. So that's what I saw with the pandemic money. People were using it incorrectly. And just, I, I was seeing like, crab lobster every day like i'm not seeing none of that no more that's the crazy part people were living in an extravagant lifestyle that i did not see no more it was like everybody got humbled it, it was ridiculous but it was sad and and now how i'm seeing it now um people are like sort of back to struggle especially now that we're in the recession and it, it's really sad but it also showed me that the argument of black people saying we need reparations we need to throw that out the window it's over for that. For me personally, I think it's over for that. We need to stop talking about that. Because the one time we got a little bit of money, people went ballistic. And it's, it's, I'm not saying it's their fault, because once again, if you don't come from financial um, knowledge and things of that nature, if you're not privy to it, if your parents didn't teach it, of course, you're not going to just naturally know what to do with money. You could have a million dollars and still mess it up if you don't know what to do with it. So it's very tricky. But at the same time, I think people need to look at the bigger picture when they ever do come across money like Think about next year. Think about going forward. Use that money to buy more money. You can buy income. Use that money to fix your credit so you can get larger credit lines at banks. Use that money to start a successful business. And people, you, when, and I always tell people, you don't have to create something new. You don't have to create a new invention. Do things that are already working. Go buy a Honda Civic, lease it on Toro so people can rent it. You see what I'm saying? Especially if you live near an airport or something. Put down Toro. Go buy Airbnb. Like, there's so many things you can do with money or with the pandemic money that would have put you in a great position today, two years from the pandemic. 
for this. So that's what I've seen from the pandemic market until now too. People like, um, some people got it, but a lot of people, they didn't learn their lesson. I hope they learned their lesson, but we'll see. Time always tells. How about playing, playing the long game or thinking about the, the future and not, not instant gratification, but delaying your, uh, exactly. delaying your success a little bit. I know you you talked a little bit about some of the projects that you got on, going on, but can you just tell us like five to ten years from now what you think, what how you like to how you envision yourself your life looking over the next five to ten years? Five to ten years. Um, I'm 25 right now, so five years from now, 30. I would say more freedom. That's the biggest thing. A lot of people, if you don't know me, they think I'm chasing money. I'm actually chasing freedom. It's just that the type of freedom that I want requires a substantial amount of money. So I want to make um, a lot of nonprofit organizations for because um, I'm from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I want to help with infrastructure out there, um, help people with job opportunities, better living conditions. I just want to have the freedom to constantly focus on things like that. And um, also, of course, taking care of my family and um, just family, um, putting more people on to different ways to make money. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood called Left Rack City in Queens, New York. So it was, it's a bad neighborhood, especially when I was coming up there. So when I get to that level five to 10 years from now, I want to do something where I, I, I get a, a mentee from that neighborhood once every year and um, try to teach them one of these asset classes and put them in a position to take care of their family and maybe move out of that neighborhood. Because one thing I've noticed is um, when you're coming from these certain neighborhoods, since I actually lived in it, it, does, it seems hopeless. It seems like you're closed in. Like when you're living in the hood and you're only seeing what's going on in the hood and you never traveled or you never even had the money just to go to the next state, it feels like the whole world is just those blocks or projects or community you're living in. So I want to, I, I think every kid deserves three things, um, food, shelter, and hope. I don't know if I can end world hunger. I don't know if I can get everybody sheltered, but I think every kid deserves hope. So that's that's one thing I want to do, be be focused on in the next five to um, 10 years. Um, and also I, I, I want to remove myself from social media someday. The same way JD did it, I want to be on that level right there where I don't need social media for any of my businesses. Cause it's like, um, social media is cool. It's a great tool to use, but once again, it can become very toxic. I find myself taking breaks periodically. Um, it just becomes too much because you're constantly seeing an influx of people's lives, whether it's reality or not. It's just too much. Like it, 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 it faults your, your own way of thinking at times. Even someone like me, I'm strong-minded, but even I can find myself thinking about things I should not be thinking about or caring about someone's um, lifestyle that I should not be caring about. So that's why I see myself five to 10 years from now focus on helping people and that being my prim primary focus and um of course still expanding on my asset class and things like that but that comes naturally especially with age too but definitely helping people that's what that's what i want to be focused on five to ten years from now hopefully i'm in a position to do so if not it's still going to be expanding on my businesses for sure i love that i love that i think i think it's cool to hear what successful people what they want to do for the future and a lot of times you you hear about all the stuff, how they want to help their communities or where they come from or the people that they, the people that they grew up with or their families. And, you know, what they hear, like, it's not just about the money. It's a bigger impact that you're trying to have with the money or use the money for. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's a negative connotation around people that, that have a lot of money 
because maybe people feel they don't deserve whatever the case may be. But we need to leave that alone. We need to start looking and learning from people that have money and what they're doing with it and just trying to mirror it. You see what I'm saying? So if you ever look at um what the rich are doing and how they're not able, they're legally not, don't have to pay taxes. There's a lot of tax loopholes with certain asset classes. For example, real estate. You can make 100000 from real estate. It only counts as realized gains if you transfer it to your bank account. So if you use that 100000 to buy more real estate, you don't have to pay taxes on it because you never realized it into like it, it never became realized network. It's just unrealized network. So there's a lot of tax loopholes. When I see people complain, I'm like, oh, this rich person didn't pay taxes or this person bought a Bentley truck. They're doing it for tax loopholes. Some of these people don't even care about the materialistic stuff. There's a lot of tax loopholes for those expensive vehicles that weigh over, I think is over, I forgot the amount. I think it's 6,000 pounds 6, or something like that. 6,000, yeah. For those vehicles, those count as, um, they give you tax benefits. So whenever you see rich people flexing or whatever the case may be, they might not even be flexing. They're doing things strategically so they don't have to pay a lot of tax and they can use their money for whatever other case. So we just need to stop like villainizing people that have money and pay attention to what they're doing. You see what I'm saying? You've given us a lot today and and the hour hour that we've been on this. Mm -hmm. What would you say one to two things that you want listeners to take away with? Um, One of the two things is number one, Bet on yourself. It's 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 risky. Um, it might not work out in your favor right away, but if you're putting the hours you're supposed to be putting into your crowd, no matter what it is, asset classes, investing, businesses, your art, whatever the case may be, if you're putting the hours you're supposed to be putting in, you're learning and um you're soaking as much information and applying that information, definitely bet on yourself. Betting on yourself can be viewed different ways. It might be quitting your nine to five. I'm not saying everybody just start quitting their nine to five. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying betting on yourself looks different to each person. Betting on yourself might just be buying a course that's going to change your way of thinking. Betting on yourself might just be asking questions to somebody that's in a position you want to be in. Put your eyes aside and learn from this person that's at a level you would like to be at because we all need someone to learn from. Me, myself, I just now got a mentor. I, I wish I, I would got a mentor a long time ago, but I just now got a mentor. He's actually a billionaire. I might tell his name someday in the future, but he's a billionaire. He's been teaching me a lot of things that I should have been learning a long time ago. So always bet on yourself. And once again, betting on yourself looks different to each person. The number two thing is use your 24 hours correctly. A lot of people make excuses that I have a job or I got this going on. And I always tell them, like, yo, life is about inches. Everybody thinks they have to do a 100-yard dash immediately. No, it's about inch by inch. So if there's two people that have a nine-to-five, person A and person B. Person A clocks out, goes home, watches Netflix till they fall asleep. Person B clocks out, sits at his desk, structures his business with him, follow how LLCs work, um, and just different avenues that can put him in a better position a year from Person B over time is going to gap person A, even though they both have nine to fives. So that's why I always say people are not better than you in life. They just use their 24 hours better than you. That's all it really is. People always say there's an overnight success. There's no such thing as an overnight success. It's just that the grind you were not able to see. You only see saw the conclusion. So those are the two components. Um, bet on yourself and um, use your 24 hours wisely. We, we got one life. Do not play with it. Take life seriously. 
I'm not saying don't have fun. You, if you have me on Instagram, you know I'd be having fun too. I, I, it's a good balance, but bet on yourself and um, use it 24 hours correctly. Mm. Y'all heard them, man. Use your 24 hours correctly <laughs> and bet on yourself. Um, Corral, appreciate you coming on. Where can people find you if they have questions or they want to learn more about you? Oh, yeah, so they can follow me on my um, personal Instagram. It's going to be M-Y-Y double underscore J-I-G-G-Y. Please be aware there's a lot of fake pages and person names. It's getting ridiculous at this point. <laughs> That's how I know I'm destined for greatness because these fake pages do not rest. So be very careful. My Instagram only has two underscores, not nothing else. Just two underscores between my and Jiggy. And as far as my business page for finance is on Macongo.capital on Instagram. And thank you guys for having me too. I see what you guys are doing and I love seeing the guests you guys have on. And you guys have been very consistent too. I think consistency with podcasts is the most important thing. When we're looking at all oh, the most successful podcasts, they're the ones that are consistent. Not the ones that are the most viral because that might only last a moment. The ones that are consistent over time and build an audience and nurture, those are the ones that stay here the longest. So definitely you guys keep doing what you're doing. We love seeing it. Thank you. Um, we'll be sure to link all of your products in the description as well and put the right link to your Instagram with the two underscores and no period on that stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, thank you. I appreciate so, that. Yeah, I, I see the pages. It's crazy. Um, but, yeah, yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, definitely want to have you on another time in the future to see, like, how much growth you've had and how you've progressed. So. Oh, yeah. We definitely going to have an update episode. I, I'm going to have a lot to update y'all about. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all. Anything else, man? Oh, that's it. We'll catch you on the next episode. Peace. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Key and Mang Audio Experience. Make sure to subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review, and we'll catch you in the next episode.